As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today at DungeonCrate.com. And use the coupon code APPENDIXDC for $5 off any new subscription. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always, that resurrected super warrior, Jeff Goad. Hello. This week, we'll be reading A Merit's Dwellers in the Mirage with our very special guest, Jeanette Ng, author and game designer, winner of the Best Newcomer Award at the British Fantasy Awards in 2018, and the 2019 Astounding Award for Best New Writer. Hello, Jeanette. Hello. Thanks for joining us. So, Jeanette, how did you get into role-playing games, and what is your history with fantasy fiction? Um, well, uh, role-playing games-wise, I, I got into live role-play first, which I believe is not the most normal route. Um, I was at uh, Durham University. It was fresh as fair, um, you know, the first week of, of being at university, and I met these people who were waving foam swords around them, wearing silly costumes, and I was like, yes, <laughs> I want to do that too. Um, so I... I I, I got into costuming. I, I made I made I made ridiculous costumes. I made myself a tea tunic, um, uh, and and you know, got a sword and slashed a lot of people. And yeah, that's that's how I got started. I, I played a lot more characters since then, um, uh, and uh, some best games. I, I ran the local game for uh, too many years. Uh, and and I've run I've run kind of a lot of live role play games. That's where most of my uh, uh, role play experiences in terms of fantasy role playing. Um, uh, I've written about like designing for live role play, designing like um, designing worlds and characters and how to write those briefs. Um, um, and I don't do that much tabletop. I, I I have a lot of tabletop books in my house. I've read a lot <laughs> of them, but I, I have to confess I don't I play I don't play that much tabletop. They are beautiful books and they're beautiful objects, they and many of them line my walls as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my that... housemates all play. Uh, I, I hear a lot of stuff secondhand. <laughs> <laughs> Is that just a, a partly be uh, the life of the writer? You want to get something more more active to get out there and just sort of literally just be in physical space rather than sort of sitting around a table? Or what's what's your? I, I love the physicality of LARP, um, which is which is very true. Um, I like the, the limitation live in in tabletop roleplay that I can't get over is the fact that um, only one person can be doing anything at any given point, and being a very anxious person. Um, I, I can get very like, oh, I, I stab them with a sword. I don't want to describe you for like describe what I'm doing for five paragraphs. Whereas right. in, in live role play, it's you sort of just do it and I don't have to worry about taking up people's attention. Right. I, I know that sounds really weird, but um No, that makes a lot of sense. That's, I that's think. my my weird anxiety about tabletop role play. Um No, I've definitely observed that um you know, and I'm sure Jeff, you have as a game master, that there's a very different ways of processing information at the table and, and, and how to balance that out. And then, 
and, and also that feeling, am I serving the table as well as myself? Uh, you know, whether you're a game master or a player. So I can see that. And I definitely have a fair amount of anxiety with that stuff too. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big tabletop gamer. I love it. But oftentimes when it's not my turn and I'm not in the spotlight, you will find me kind of fidgeting with dice and making little <laughs> dice. Terms. And I'm paying attention, but like I need to be doing something with my hands or something. Otherwise, I'm just getting too anxious. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in LARP, like, you know, if I give a big speech and people don't want to listen to me, they just they just leave the room. Um, <laughs> which is fine. They're allowed to do that. That's part of the game. Exactly. Uh, right. They and, can have know, their scene somewhere else. Yeah, they right. have their scene somewhere else. So, so that's, that's how I cope. Um, and and I love great. attention. That's the other thing. I, I do love attention. I just... <laughs> <laughs> so how about uh, your getting into fantasy fiction? How, how What was your... I think I read Mercedes Lackey when I was like... 12 mm-hmm. um and I, that would be i think that would be i think the first kind of big introduction to fantasy fiction so um valdemar was like my big so you know magical horses kingdoms like um and, and i think that there was a i think there isn't even is a, a, a valdemar tabletop game these mm-hmm. days it, it's structured in a way that feels like it could slide easily into a into a tabletop setting and i read a lot of um rimini feist and that's the mm. kind of book where once you learn about tabletop, you could just hear the dice clattering in the background. <laughs> now, when that was, uh, were you, uh, this is while you were still growing up in Hong Kong or had you come to the UK? Yes, by I, was, this point? I was still in Hong Kong at that point. Uh, yeah. I bought a lot of them secondhand at the school fair. Oh, mm. um, someone must have like moved away because at one point we had just, just dozens and dozens of um, Dragonlance novels. <laughs> um, just like absolute dozens of them. I assume someone moved and just donated their entire collection. So I know more about Dragonlance than I have any right to, nor do I. <laughs> I, I don't care about Dragonlance, but I read so many when I was a teenager. And ha- have you done much reading of the kind of pulp era or the kind of era leading up through like maybe the 1970s, kind of the early kind of proto fantasy fiction? Um, not a huge amount. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm more. I, I'm very, I'm I'm more versed in like a lot of the the romantics, um, Mary Shelley. Um, mm-hmm. I mean that that's 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 like uh, that's a lot of like um, I did I did a degree in in literature and that's I'm sorry I I, I can you know reel you off like Tolkien's inspirations, but I'm I'm not I'm, I can't I can't um, I, I haven't actually read as much in right. that. And you're also space. you're also a medievalist by training, is that right? Yes, I'm a medievalist by training. I did I did. Uh, uh, Old Norse. I wrote my uh, thesis on um, Valkyries, Brynhild, and and Sigurd, and you know all the rest of it. Poetic Edda. When did that start appealing to you? That was when you came to the UK, or was it already when you were in Hong Kong? That, that um, when I was in Hong Kong, I, I was I was reading about Vikings, and like I, I sort of read all. I, I was really into mythology, as like a lot of kids are. Um, mm-hmm. So I read like all of the Greek mythology, and I read read all of Norse mythology, and then I kind of got stuck on the Norse for some reason. I, I mm-hmm. honestly can't tell you why, but I don't know. Women with swords was right, right. cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, my first grade teacher was Swedish, so she introduced us to a lot of that stuff too, so it's pretty funny. Um, so, uh, all right. So we are reading uh, A. Merits, uh, Dwellers in the Mirage. Uh, Jeff, do you have a high Gaxian word of the week for us? Well, before we do that, <laughs> let's discuss which edition of the book we're working sure. with. So I've got a paperback here. I've got the 1967 Avon paperback, and this has the Douglas Rosa cover. And here we have a very blonde, very strong, very handsome, very capable uh, shirtless man with his bloody sword. And he's fighting a big 
a big black <laughs> octopus. Um, Hoy, which version are you working with? I uh, read a 99 cent version on the Kindle, but then I also went to uh, freeread.com.au, uh, uh, Roy Glashan's site in Australia. Um, and that has the Argosy ending, the, uh, as Je- Jeanette will talk, talk to us about, it's the, the, the quote unquote happy ending. Um, and uh, which version are you reading, Jeanette? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I, I read the I read like the ninety nine p one on Kindle as well, so I, I'm not sure. It, it's the one with the sad ending. That's as like, much as I can tell you. <laughs> All right. So I think you're the one who has the different ending. Then that's yeah. great. Right. So I did, we'll, I did pull it up the the sad ending, but yes, that's nice. The one I, yeah. Quote unquote sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quote unquote sad. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> so then, our high Gaxian word of the day is suff. Suff. And Suf is found on the and found in the very first paragraph of the story. It says, I raised my head, listening, not only with my ears, but with every square inch of my skin, waiting for a recurrence of the sound that had awakened me. There was silence, utter silence, no suffing in the boughs of the spruces clustered around the little camp, no stirring of furtive life in the underbrush. So that is the word suff. And suff means to, uh, it's the making, to make a moaning or a whistling or a rushing sound, such as the wind in the trees or the sea, etc. So that is our Hygaxian word of the day. So heading on into the library and chatting about Dwellers in the Mirage, I guess we can start with a nice broad question and say, uh, Jeanette, what did you think of Dwellers in the Mirage? Oh, it was really, really interesting. Um, Oh, where to begin? So the thing about Dwellers in the Mirage is I don't feel like you could discuss it without discussing um, the plight of um, Uyghurs right now in China. Right. Because this book is quite racist about them. And Mm -hmm. the racism is very much in the same vein as the racism that is practiced by the Chinese Communist Party right now. The CCP's Mm. treatment of them you know, putting them in re-education camps um, and and the way that, you know, uh, Xinjiang is now turning into this police state, is this police state, all, all that is comes back down to a perception of them as other, uh, this perception of them as being this diminished, mixed race, that they, they, they can never be Chinese and this because of their customs, of their people, and like all that stuff is... is bound up and like at the heart of this book uh mm-hmm. and and so it's, it's really hard to kind of separate it like and i, and I know that you know I, I want to have a lot of fun discussing it in terms of like you know it, it's pulp it's it's meant to be fun but it's it it's it, it's just very it, it's very timely for me to read this because because of all that relevance and and i mm-hmm. i probably should just uh summarize briefly um what i mean by all this because um, I, I don't know how much I'm expecting the listener to have read the book. Um, uh, yeah. But the hero of our story, uh, Leaf, he's said to be a uh, a genetic throwback, an atavism. So much like, you know, hens who have teeth, I don't know, um, people who have vestigial tails. Uh, he, he is a Norse throwback um, to the extent that he has, like, the genetic memories of this great Aryan ubermensch. Uh, and and he, he is the great conquering hero. Um, and, and, and the thing is, about this entire narrative where, you know, where he's... Um, 
he's, his blood is being tested because his blood is purer um, mm-hmm. than, than everyone else's, and that you know he, he he he's the one who could do the ritual that could revive the Uyghur race. Oh God, it's so fucking racist. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it just won't stop. Like every time it comes up, you know, it's just. Um, it keeps using words like diminished and 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 like their blood is diluted. Yep, um, and pure blood and ancient and, blood and yeah, the, the ancient race. And... Blood, the ancient blood weakened, and, and it's it's very repetitive. And I, I'm repetitive here because the, the story itself is repetitive. Like you know, ancient blood weakened, starved as it weakened, um, but it's enough to to um, to clamor against extinction. You know, stuff like that. Um, and the thing is. This, this was written in, and pu- was published in 1932. Mm-hmm. 1931, uh, the Uyghur people were actually beginning their rebellion against the Han Chinese. Um, in, uh, and in 33, which is admittedly after the publication of this book, in 33, um, that is the founding of the Islamic Republic of East Turkestan. And that is not a coincidence. Like mm-hmm. the, 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 this entire, like, you know, he, in the, the first half of the book where he has his whole flashback where he interacts with the Uyghur people and he, he does this great ritual where he's reviving them by sacrificing this, this poor pregnant child. Um, I say child because the book says child. It's very insistent yes. that she's a child and not a yes. woman because yes. which woman gets to be a woman, but that, that is a child. So, so, you know, let uh, and we're not going to dwell on how uncomfortable that is, but I'm just going to put that there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he sacrifices that to to the Kraken. And then, you know, the priest is like, ah, yes, you know, we're, we're now going to revive ourselves. We're, 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 we're finally, you know, Uyghur land will be exist and, you know, we'll be peopled by the people, that, uh, by by the ancient race again, if you stay here and lead us. And he doesn't, you know, obviously he doesn't, and he goes off to have other ventures. But, but all that... Uh, published in 1932, that, that's, it is no coincidence that 1931, the rebellion happened. And, and mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, Merritt was doing a lot of research in this, uh, like Fairchild and uh, Burr, uh, the people that Leaf travels with, they're, they're real people. Who, huh. who, oh, wow. They're, they're, they're real people who did real, you know, science. Right. Uh, and, and, and that was a real expedition that he's referencing. Really? Uh, I had no idea. Um, so, so it's, so, you know, when we say it's science fantasy, it's very hard to read it as pure pulp in my mind because it mm-hmm. has all these connections. It has that parallel. And of course, the very unfortunate thing is, uh, not only is he implying that this very real rebellion, uh, is happening because of, you know, uh, masterful white guy, secret ancient Norse guy shows up to save them and does all that stuff. Um, because in the real world, um, uh, the Islamic Republic of Earth, um, East Turkestan was was defeated. There was almost this kind of the weird implication, and this is not intentional on his behalf, but this implication that it failed because white guy didn't stay around. If you see what I mean. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And and so, and, and that 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 uh, so that is not the author's fault, but it just all compounds in this. And you're and I'm just reading it, going, wow, just wow. Was the perception of, I mean, always the Han have probably have this perception of the Uyghurs as alien and other and, and peripher- peripheral barbarians. But do you know what the Western perception of the Uyghurs was at that point? Was um, Merit's so, perception typical? Um, so it's quite interesting because they they featured quite, I think this is where Merit gets it from. It, they feature relatively heavily in a lot of the pseudo 
sciencey stuff like uh like sacred symbols of mu has like a an allegedly uyghur sculpture on its cover for example and that's that's a uh, uh that's 1933 james church ward um mm-hmm. and, and, so this kind of, like... and this is all the kind of like pseudosciencey stuff that like lovecraft later draws on um this is it, all like madame blavatsky kind of stuff yeah yeah, yeah. Like, this is like the, the the secret atlanteans lost civilization stuff and and the week is featured relatively heavily in that um in that narrative um and this idea of diminished races uh because the, the thing about the Uyghurs and um a lot of people think they look a bit white I, I think that's right. the simplest way to put it. Right. And because of that, people come up with all these little racist, sort of eugenic, right. Uh, right. diminished race bullshit to explain this or that about them. There's some um, sort of primordial descendant of the, the Ur, Uber white right. race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right, and that's, right. that's where it comes from. And, and like mm. it, it comes, and it, it comes up today still a lot, like with kind of the way Han Chinese talk about them because they're like, you know, the because of the way that they say, well, you know, they're not really a people because mm. they're 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 not because of their mixed race. They're 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 totally not really an ethnic group because of all these things. And, right. And so therefore, they're not deserving of any protection. Yeah, exactly. And then so on, right. so forth. It's, it's right. all, and it's very, it's all here, <laughs> and that's. Yeah. And one um, of the things I was because I I know nothing about the uh, the Uyghurs and the Han, but I know one of the things that was that was coming up for me while reading this was I was thinking about Mormonism and the Book of Mormon and how there's this whole story about how Joseph Smith, uh, um, I'm sorry, not, um, how the Native Americans in America were originally blonde haired blue eyed white people who were then cursed by God with dark skin or whatever. And I feel like there's this there's this kind of common trope within uh, Western fiction to talk about the secret blonde hair, blue-eyed roots of these ancient peoples as a way of kind of justifying white people coming in and taking these areas over. Because truly, if, if, if this story were true, then these areas were historically ours and now we're here to reclaim them. It seems to be kind of like a justification of uh colonialism and the expansion of like white empires too yes yes very much so um i i think that there's also this idea that um their 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 complexion their 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 their, what they look like is is justification for why they're diminished like you Mm -hmm. know like why is dark skin bad basically i think is and 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 like the, the hierarchy here is quite um quite acute where um when they go into the, the um into the, the into the mirage you have the the also slightly diminished um red-haired people because they're not blonde mm-hmm. like him they're not they're not as good as him and then and like this, this emphasis on hair color and eye color just keeps coming up like just even in passing i, I just found that very striking how you know he he kind of dreams of um like blue-eyed women throwing down garlands of flowers for his horse to trample and stuff like that. Right. Um, in his in his past life. In his past right. life, yes. Right, right. Um, and also in this life, though. I mean, there's this one this one section here. Where, where did I put that down? Uh, my height, my yellow hair, blue eyes, and freakish strength, and my facility in picking up languages were of never-ending interest to them. So you know, we're kind of constantly talking about how you know oh, how he's his horse. Oh my god, his horse. <laughs> like, like, like they bring him a horse that's bigger than all the other horses, and it's a stallion, and it's right. like, 
so big and it's the only horse that's big enough to carry him because he's so big and it's like wow is this a metaphor for your penis oh my god Just that and also we're introduced to, the, to his uh native american buddy jim and kind of all throughout it like they're they're blood brothers they're like best buddies they've like become the closest friends in the world yet like he's just kind of casually calling him redskin or being like hey get over here indian um, and it's like, but it's, it doesn't go both ways. Cause it's not like a jokey thing where then Jim says, all right, Whitey coming right up. Like uh, it's, it's just like kind of the disparaging way that he refers to this person who's supposedly like a, his, his blood brother. Uh, and then, then Jim is kind of constantly fawning over Leaf and telling him, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, you're so much more resilient than I am. And then even in the end when he's dying, he's oh, basically God. like, oh, don't go on without me. It's okay that I'm dying. You know, as long as you save Evely and continue on. Oh, and the, it's like... The, <sighs> the death scene was very, very... The, the death scene particularly got me because he says, um, he says to Leaf... Um, it's not your fault. You didn't pick your damned ancestors, which is a very, like, it, it's very, oh, you can't help being white. You don't have to apologize for being white, dude. And it's like, <laughs> well, like, in many circumstances, um, I, I appreciate that, you know, guilt isn't always very helpful, but in this specific case, he's literally reenacting his ancestors and murdering everyone. Right. Because he's being possessed by his ancestors to the extent where it's like, you should probably feel a bit bad at this point. What with <laughs> literally killing people right, <laughs> right. possessed by your ancestor. Like it's, it's for literally being responsible for the death of your blood brother. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's a lot more immediate. Um, <laughs> and, and, and don't get me wrong. Like, like the, 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 the whole thing, it, it's just, I, I'm not right. saying that they should never feel guilty, but it's just even more immediate. Oh, Do you think, though, I, I read this in some ways. Again, this is not any kind of excuse. I'm just saying interesting, though. Do you think, though, that Leaf is a character who is from the very beginning also just traumatized and potentially suffering from P PTSD? It seems that way to me. Like He and Jim are both veterans of World War I. He fled from this thing that he caused to happen in the Gobi where the, the child was sacrificed. Yeah. Um, and so I'm wondering if you if you felt that that was a strain that was going through the story. He and it, obviously in the unhappy ending, you know, he's clearly traumatized. Also, um, again, none of that is to excuse anything that happens in the story. I'm just wondering if that was a layer that you thought was might be interesting. I don't know. Like he 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 goes from being like, oh my god, she died. It's terrible. To being remarkably callous about it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think it might just be like the the long rambling style of the author it it, it mm -hmm. there's a certain emotional distance that Leaf mm -hmm. holds which i think you can read as a form of ptsd where where he kind of everyone is kind of held at a distance he doesn't mm. really let anyone close to him even even jim um right. like even at the height of his romance where he's calling um everly stuff like oh flame of my heart you know you never get the sense that they're they're kind of bonding emotionally he feels very distant as a character no. If which, anything, his connection with Lure is much closer, you know, it's, it's yeah, or, combative. Or yeah, his but. past relationship, like his past life self's relationship with Lure, that was just, yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, uh, Dwayanu, Dwayanu, Dwayanu and Laura have a great connection. Yes. Um, <laughs> Leaf doesn't really have a connection with anybody. Right, um, right. 
Oh, um, the North, sorry, the, the North hierarchy is quite interesting. Um, if you kind of, uh, kind of look at the kind of Norse angle as well, um, I, I have the background in the Norse, blah, 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 uh, because, um, the, the hair color thing, um, is an aspect in the Song of Rig where, um, uh, Heimdall as Rig basically goes around and sleeps with and, and blesses, um, three different couples with, uh, children, um, who then become like the basis of the North caste system. Um, hmm. so you have the, the blonde kind of ruling caste class, the, the red haired kind of warrior class and the, um, the, the, the kind of the, the black brown haired, um, kind of thrall class, the, the work, thrall, uh, thrall, the slave thrall, class. peasant, peasant, peasant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, not very free, um, uh, and and that's and, and I think I think you, you get some of that echoed here as well, uh, especially with um, and and you kind of have they explicitly mention about the idea of the Norse gods being human in the past, um, and that the exploits of the Norse gods are, are exaggerations, and you have like a Thor esque character, um, right. except his hammer is on a string, so that there is that right. angle as well, right? For inspiration, uh, Tiber, right? Yes. Right. Do you feel? Um... I mean, obviously, there's there's no question that things that are happening here are, are regressive at best and, and you know racist in, in many instances. Do you feel that this is a, a exceptionally so for the period of the norm? Um, is there something that still is interesting that's happening going on in here? You know, with all that going on, it's a very interesting snapshot of. Um, I, I think what what it, what it does is it says the quiet bits out loud, um, mm-hmm. and I think what is fascinating to me about it is that it gives you all these tropes that we're very familiar with, with the, in the rest of fantasy, with things like the dying race, the secret people, um, like, you know, there's, there's a dying magical race who are looking to be revived. Um, there are, like, past life memories, and, and all these kind of bits and pieces. Uh, and here, but, but the explanation of them, uh, the justification of why they exist in the story are all super racist. Um, and and it's not like a distant racism to me. It's, it's very much a racism that's still happening and are causing real people to be in re-education camps mm-hmm. and getting killed. And it's and, and that's and, and it's and, and there is no pretense to me of mm-hmm. those two things. Like they they're um like I, I don't know, like 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 Tolkien has dying races, for example. Um, but like you know, loads of people have like dying races, like you know, people who are like elves who are fading away and so forth. But here, it's very explicit. It's not you know, magic is fading because it is the nature of the land. No, no, they 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 they're 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 a dying race because um, they they literally had sex with other people who weren't their race. Right. And right. you know, right. race mixing. That's the answer. That that's why we like. That's why you know. And it's kind of mm-hmm. feeding into this kind of oh, oh, it's it's just you know the great replacement white insecurities. Oh no, teddy bears are causing white girls to lose their maternal instincts. Blah blah blah. Like you know, it's all that stuff kind of distilled into mm-hmm. those anxieties um, around. Um, whiteness distilled into this this um this story and and I, I think it can be very illuminating to see how those tropes that you know I I, I love the, the kind of like oh no the elves they're fading away like you know they're, they're very romantic tropes they right. I, they have a lot of appeal to me and I have liked them in many many other versions and I, and I love like you know finding out lost history and, and like you know Frozen 2 uses this like you know um Elsa and Anna go into the mists 
and they, right. they find lost people and they learn more about their history. Um, so, you know, these tropes are still being used today and, and they're very popular. But here you kind of, there was no, there was no pretense that they, they can be about anything else other than this. And the question mm. I suppose I keep asking myself is how inherent is, are these racist unsavory elements to the tropes? Can they be mm. used um, like the the, the, the like the, the the dying race, the the fading right. away, all that stuff. Can can that be used in a way that isn't terrible? Right. Can we I mean, have can, ancestral memory and and all that stuff without being terrible? Right. Um, can we have can we have orcs in our D and D game? Yeah, and yeah. Have it not and be then, racist. Yeah, yeah, and then that's um, yeah. or at least not right. too racist. Right. <laughs> um, sure. Um, yeah, and I definitely think there are context in which you can make that work like you know I've, I've, as you're talking about in uh ancestral memory i start thinking about things like uh inherited trauma for example like yeah. there are these these studies that were done on rabbits where um they introduced these rabbits to electroshock therapy when there was a specific smell that was introduced and one thing they discovered is that the children and the grandchildren of those rabbits, when they were introduced to that smell, they went into a panic, even though they weren't being electrocuted. It's solely coming down from their inherited trauma. So I definitely think there are interesting ways that you can explore things like this with, and kind of remove the racial element to it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, the, the way it's usually been done has been steeped in racism. Um, yeah. Um, and one thing that I also think is really interesting that I would love to chat with you about is we've a lot of the stories that we've been reading from this era, Lurker in the Threshold, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Darker Than You Think, deal with this deal with the story of our protagonist who ends up getting in touch with this kind of uh, primal um, ancestral version of himself, and it takes this person over, and they lose their identity in this, and end up committing horrific acts while being possessed by this like ancestor form. And I feel like this is a really common thing that we're seeing in the fiction of the era. That's not really something we see too often in our fiction today. I'm wondering, do you guys have any theories as to why that particular trope was so common then and not seen so often now? My take on it, and I think I mentioned this in the book club, is it, partly it's a struggle with modernity, right? And, and um, you know, the whole world, but obviously Western Europe was very traumatized by emerging out of World War One, which at that point was the most destructive war, you know, at the in sure number of terms in human history. Um, so they're looking back to a past, but is there really a past that's worth looking back to? Tolkien seems to think there is, but maybe, you know, someone who's a little bit more cynical Robert E. Howard said, no, we've always been like this. <laughs> you know, you can look back to this, but we've always been like this, right? Um, I mean, there's more to that than that, but I think that's one of the things that is maybe part of that struggle. Uh, this is the time where there was a shift in the idea of whiteness and how it's defined and basically the justification of why white people are better than everyone else and should take them over. So um, in different eras, there were different justifications, just as there were shifting definitions of who gets to be white. Uh, we, we're, um, I mean, his, his, his surname Langdon, um, like, you know, Langdon yeah. are, Langdon men are dark and slender and thin lips. Like um, it, it's, um, it's an implication that you know, his his um, his mo his mother married like an Italian, like people who we would now perhaps can still consider to be white. But mm -hmm. in, the, in the 30s, that was a very different landscape because whiteness is a construct, is a social construct fundamentally. But so so sure, the Irish weren't considered white among some people in New York at, at the time, um, or at least um, other. Um, 
and, right. yeah. and, and all that stuff. And, and the thing is about this era, um, or like the, the shifting ideas of whiteness, is that um, earlier on, um, there were, were a lot of ar- arguments of white people deserve to be um, on top. They deserve to conquer everyone because they're better at conquering people. So there was this idea that white people were just more aggressive and that like the indigenous people of various types are all, all just very docile. They don't have any ambition. Um, they're, 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 they're animalistic, but in a very kind of placid way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I stress obviously all wrong, terrible, but, um, and there was the shift as, as the, 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 arguably because of the, you know, reading from the war, there, there was a shift in the, the arguments of racism um, to where it is now, where it's just much more white people are, are more intellectual, they're cleverer, they're smarter, they're more civilized. Right. Um, right. And I think one of the things, one of the reasons why you see this kind of um, being possessed by your animalistic, terrible ancestors, um, we're seeing that shift in why are white people good? Like mm-hmm. why? Why do they deserve to be conquer? Like do be on top? That the, the tensions in that argument is being played out in in the right. person of interesting the leaf. Right. It can't just be brute force anymore. It has to be yeah. what you're talking um, about. The scientific. So it should be like, oh, scientific. Well, we're very good at science. We're very good at culture. We're not just good at killing people. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And this is the anxiety of sort of the first pers- first wave of of decolonialization, right? That's starting to yeah. happen. Yeah, I would, right. I would say that. Right, you know that becomes to full fruition in the '60s with you know Algeria and Vietnam mm-hmm. and all the other right. Yeah. Okay. Now, kind of transitioning this conversation over towards the <laughs> gaming side a bit more. Um, no, and this is great. We're having. I'm, I'm loving this conversation. But uh, one thing that is interesting to me, though, is you know many of the things that we're reading as a part of this project, we're reading just because Gary Gygax said, "Hey, read stuff by this author." But Gary Gygax very specifically listed this title as a title to be read because it inspired Dungeons and Dragons and can inspire your gaming today. So I'm curious, while you were reading this story, was there anything that was really sticking out to you as to, um, as to why perhaps this is an, um, a title that was specifically cited as inspiration? I don't know. Like, I, I, I just... <laughs> like, he has, like, an artifact, and it glows, and it proves, like, you could sort of, you could sort of imagine that encounter in, in your, in your, like, adventure manual, like, you know. Yeah, give the, the magic ring. Mm-hmm. You have a magic ring. The, and it's the gonna, ring of Calcrew. Yeah, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna, yeah. it's gonna glow when, when Leaf, like, you know, when, when your PC holds it, and this, this, like, I, I can sort of see the shape of those things, um, as, like, hooks, and I wouldn't even say, like, you know, the, the story is particularly episodic in the sort of discrete encounters way that you sort of think about a D&D campaign. But mm-hmm. maybe, I, maybe my exposure to D&D is very limited in that regard. Well, let me, let's look at it another way. You are a very experienced LARP player and designer, and here we have at least three distinct factions, right? We have the, the, the sort of people who want to maintain the status quo of, of worshipping Calcrew, and uh, the women and the other people who are originally part of the society who've escaped and set up their own sort of fugitive, a fugitive slave city, for lack of a better word. And yeah. then we have the Goldlings. Is that something that you could work with in a in a LARP game? I mean, you know, is yeah. the faction to play something? You know, I suppose that's a quite interesting thing about it as a book that it doesn't actually have that many characters. It has more factions mm-hmm. than it has characters in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, like. He, he he shows up, you know, in, in Mongolia and, you know, um, Fairchild and Burr are mentioned by name, but they're, they're, you know, in real life, real people. Whereas 
um, the people he encounters, they're all just, they're all very faceless. And mm-hmm. there's kind of focus on the, on the main characters. Um, like you know, he, he encounters the captain who follows him like a dog, um, who mm-hmm. obeys him like a dog. It repeats like a dog twice. So I feel like I have to, too. Um, <laughs> um, and, and like stuff like that, where these people, like, except for like, the people who get names, it's just very few, you know, there's, there is Lur, there is Everly, there's like, you know, even, yeah. and there's Jim obviously, but it's, yeah. it's very, very small, the cast. And I think that that's, that is actually something that might reflect a lot of tabletop games where mm. um, there is a very distinct separation between the player characters um, or at least the, the main characters as, as the kind of the other people who are just basically um, part of their faction. And, and mm-hmm. they're there to express the will of their faction um, because mm-hmm. it's a way you abstract um, large groups of characters, like background NPCs in in uh, role play games, where where you know you, you have a large faction and, and you know they, they show up, but they're, they're basically faceless. They're not right, right. Yeah, ca- individual for... characters. They're they're mm-hmm. they're there to represent their faction to to the, the players. If you were to take this story and um... Maybe maybe talk about maybe we take it back in time, right? So this these factions have been set into place because they basically created a treaty. You know, they they broke yeah. the bridge. Is that something like? Could you see like creating a LARP about that? Maybe that segment that that snapshot in time of how they came to the treaty or something like that, or any any stage of the society? Do you, do you think that yeah, would be? No, no, I, I I I think that like I, I think that that is. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. That I, I think you are, you are definitely onto something about the way the factions feed very nicely into the way we we talk about like live role play games or role play games in general and um, trying to write. And then there are definitely possibilities of stories there. Um, LARPs or LARPs I'm familiar with, like there, there are two types of LARPs that you know you kind of run. Like there's um, there's the kind of linear where you you go through a series of encounters. So usually there's there's not necessarily as much in terms of factions where you're just kind of throwing like here are some guards here is a group of um, farmers right. and, and you know they, they tell the plot to the the characters right. they, they walk past down right. a linear mm-hmm. path um, and uh, but like you know in terms of factional stuff yeah like yeah no like I think that's um, and then you know negotiating a treaty is always a, a good um, a good um, LARP scenario because people can mm-hmm. argue at each other and murder each other in the dark about it. Right. And even in the sort of overlord society, there's a number of factions, right? Because Lure has one set of interests. Uh, Tibor has another set of interests. However, the, the, these costume requirements would not fly in a live roleplay game. I'm just saying. <laughs> None of these women wear clothes. Right, right. <laughs> that's true. At, at most, they're wearing a thin belt. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's absolutely true. And actually, speaking of the women, uh, one thing that I thought was so uh, before our episodes, we have like a discussion that we'll have with members of our um, of our Patreon. We'll have like a little patron book club discussion. And one of the things we were chatting about there was um, women in this story and how they were used. And one of the things that I was saying is I thought that women are used very interestingly in this story. However, I don't think that the women are interesting. Laura's pretty cool. I mean, I will go out my Laura's way. cool. Um, but yeah. she's, she's like the only person who really changes and right. has yeah. like a big, I mean, obviously Leaf regresses into his past self, but th- there are right. two, there are two distinct states and he kind of emerges right. from it. But Laura, Laura goes from being like this woman with a cruel mouth, with a subtle cruelty about her lips. Um, right. And, you know, she softens to him and, and, you know, I assume Merritt has some kind of fetish for, um, dominatrices who submit to you because that's that's what he seems to be into 
but but Laura has this whole arc where she right. she, so, she softens and she becomes into him and um right. and I, I believe she is one of the first like sword and sorcery badass lady characters. Um, I think she's uh, cited as a inspiration for Jurat. Jurel? Jurel. Jurel. Oh, really? Yeah, I think she definitely has, I mean, she definitely holds her own in battle, right? And and in the, in the, both in the unhappy ending, she actually kills Evelie. Yeah. Right. So is the only difference between the happy ending and the unhappy ending is whether or not Evelie dies? Yes. Uh, Largely that. And then, then Leaf, then leaves traumatized, obviously, from, and, and cannot return to the, to the valley. Whereas, you know, in the happy ending, he gets to, you know, go off and live some kind of, you know, traumatize Evelyn by bringing her into the modern world. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit where it's, Merritt seems very, like, Merritt feels very ambivalent, like he doesn't seem to want to write the happy ending, so he's like, right. oh, Evelyn's not going to enjoy living the modern world, it's going to really, really suck for her, well, we're <laughs> right. still going. Right, like, um, right. And the happy ending is, is the first published ending, but it's the ending that he was felt kind of forced into, and then in the early 40s, when they republished them in sort of the larger, um, pulp magazines he he put that unhappy ending back in um and i don't know about the i don't know if i read any of the previous villainesses in the the books that we've read jeff as dominatrix types but but jeanette (laughs) certainly in all the other stories there's always a dark woman and and a light woman and in this case it's a slight flip because at least the physically lighter woman is the villainous whereas in this case uh so that's a slight flip but there's always a sort of a split between they're attracted to two women and women woman always seems to be a priestess of some uh, some power. It's like a, like Bond girls, you know. This good one is the bad one, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> I think Lure has that whole thing where she's introduced as being very very domineering, um, and has that whole like kinky subtext. And he he kind of takes on Doramu, and he's like, "Oh, I suddenly find you hot. Also, um, I'm gonna sexually assault you, but you're gonna find this hot." So, um, right after I I knock the dagger out of your hand, um, so it's. And then she does fall for him, right? Apparently, mm-hmm. and and it's, and I, I feel bad for her because you know, um, she's ultimately a very rational character, right? I'm not saying that her, what she wants is good, but she wants to not have her way of life disturbed and destroyed, right? And she knows that there's actually it's built on a false premise because there is a life beyond the valley, right? Mm-hmm. Right? And why should she be the one that's out of this triumvirate why does she always have to submit to tibor and this other priest and now do i you right why can't she be the one on top well, for once there's a kind of weird sexism as well with the whole priest thing where if um if karaku is uh, the kraken is is summoned by a woman they'll stay and right. and like destruction will happen but if a man does it um uh they they'll take the sacrifice and go and it'll be good because reasons yeah and is, um, is the idea that men are strong enough to control it and send it back or is the idea that like once the woman is there it's not going to want to i'm not exactly sure right, I, I don't know what the justification is but it, it's obviously yeah. like it, it's a very clear like woman's bad but in what way or is it more just like a uh, woman having power unchecked is bad leads to destruction of everything. Yeah. <laughs> and also, the, and then there's the question of like, why does Calcrew care if you're blonde or what your genitalia is? Like, uh, it also seems like, cause we're dealing with this like very alien other dimensional creature yeah. that like, we're constantly asking in the story, like what the hell is this thing? So why does it care? Yeah. Well, it, it's also described in very like pseudo y alien terms as well. Like it, it has all, like they have all this, 
um, like he really he really rams up that kind of like oh yes you know life isn't meant to exi- truly exist life is an aberration so it's in in the laws of science and 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 like it, it kind of portrays um, like it has that kind of scientific veneer and I, mm-hmm. I think um, I think this is also kind of the ancestor to Lovecraft's um, um, Cthulhu I believe mm-hmm. oh um, absolutely yeah, yeah. this is this or, feels very Lovecraftian and it's also very much in the style of like we cannot understand this thing which is why we're not going to explain it because it is ultimately unexplainable and ununderstandable by human mind which I dig I, I actually I I really appreciate when an author doesn't over explain everything <laughs> A lot, though. <laughs> <laughs> only, I mean, only use ten percent of your brain. The other eighty percent right, right. is is ancestral memories. Right, right. <laughs> like, it, fair, he fair. really wants to explain those bits to you in a way that, yes. if he didn't, it would seem like like he really goes into the details of like um, where the like this idea that um, like he he, he it, it feels like he's he's cribbing from from like anthropology anthropology books he might be reading at the time but mm-hmm. um, and I I don't have the time to kind of go through and actually tell you which ones but it right. feels like that's what he's been reading I mean I, I think that was definitely his inclination I mean he was a journalist by training he did have a lot of uh, fascination with you know other cultures you know not mm-hmm. necessarily in a positive way from our point of view but um, so I think that he wanted to give it that veneer of reality, like this thing is actually happening or it could be happening right now. Certainly with the moon pool, that was the case, Jeff, right? Because that was like <laughs> supposedly a report back to the histor- uh, scientific society, right? Mm. Even with his very lush prose, he wants to give it a, like a, a sort of like, well, this is happening right over the hill, right? You know, you just haven't gone far enough into Alaska to find this valley, but I tell you, it's there. It's totally know? there. So now if we took this story and we stripped out Leaf and we stripped out all of the ancestral aspects of this storyline and we just have these factions and we just have cal crew and we just kind of have like the the setting and the story as presented would this be an interesting role-playing game hex crawl i don't know what's left <laughs> um, <laughs> um like I, I really like because you're, you're still having like a diminutive like noble savagey mm-hmm. childlike people versus mm-hmm. the amazonian lady warriors who are naked all the time who mm-hmm. are ruled by dudes for reasons um yeah because because they're very implicitly <laughs> matriarchal except for the the triumvirate has two dudes and it's sort of right. like oh that's that's weird i thought like you're full of no no that's not a thing um right. so i'm like I, I i genuinely am not sure what is left when you sort of strip it all away Right. So, how much do you have to add back in to make yeah, it more? Yeah, because you, 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 you have to add something back in to, to right, right. flesh them out. It's like, okay, maybe maybe the, the matriarchal society isn't like weirdly creepy and like. And then yeah. also, what what do you do there? Um, yeah. Um. So so I'm I'm not I'm not sure what the answer is. Um. And it's like, well, if you're just down to back down to like, well, um, there are two factions and they had a peace treaty in the past and now one of them is breaking it for reasons and it's like, well, you know, that's that's workable, but that's that is almost vague to the point of generic. Mm. Right, um, right. So I'm guessing if you were to put together a list of books to read for inspiration for your gaming, this would probably not be on it. No, but I, <laughs> I, 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 would, I would say it's it's very interesting as as a historical document in, into like the history of the genre. Uh, as I said <laughs> before, I think it's very naked, and that's. And I don't just mean the women. Um, right. It's very yeah. naked in the tropes and, and right. what, how it justifies them. And I think that that is genuinely super interesting. 
Right. I agree. And that was one thing that I really loved about your acceptance speech at the, um, at the, <laughs> uh, at the, um, astounding award. What is, I'm sorry, Hoy, what is it? Uh, astounding award for best newcomer. Uh, best Thank new you. writer. Best new writer. I loved when you said, these are the bones of the genre we were given. Like, I feel like this is like, I feel like th- what you said right there, like, is, so applicable to dwellers in the mirage (laughs) (laughs) but you can see echoes of it still i I think that's that's what like i feel that's what makes me feel uncomfortable about it it's not like oh you know none of this exists anymore like Mm -hmm. the you go into the mists and there are people there and they're like that that is literally and i I love frozen 2 but i can and I, i don't think frozen 2 has the same themes or the same racism by any stretch of the imagination but but it has that shape and it's right. like, mm-hmm. what does that? Right. What does that mean? You right. know, any yeah. any lost world narrative is potentially neo-colonialist, right? If it's not well, yeah, and that, that is that is also true. So, right. um, um, you know. that is the bones of the genre. So, right. um, I mean, it's certainly I see. Uh, we mentioned Lovecraft. Certainly, I see influences on Robert E. Howard. Um, this would sort of been contemporary with his call story, sort of pre, and sort of precede the the Conan stories by what six months, Jeff, or a year? Is that what, is that what we looked up earlier? Yeah, so th- uh, the first installment of Dwellers in the Mirage was January of 32, and the first Conan story was published in December of 32. Yeah, so in that area. The wolf hood is cool. I would like to own a wolf hood. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and have, uh, have falcons and wolves that do your bidding. Yeah, that would be, that would be nice. I, 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 can, I, can, I can get with, get with that. Um, and I that was pretty sweet when Lore shed a tear over her falcon with the broken wing and her right. uh, two or three dead wolves. Right. I mean, I have to say that this book I thought was genuinely exciting in a lot of scenes, not necessarily in the service of good, but like the actual battle to take back the, the city of the escaped slaves was really exciting. It's just that it was like you were literally seeing it through the eyes of the, the evil characters. Yeah. You know? And also like the, 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 the naked painted women climbing across the wall through the mists to like right. infiltrate the tower. Yeah. Uh, I also thought like, you know, a, we're using these women as, as just kind of uh, cannon fodder. Uh, but also it's also really fascinating and a fun and kind of a heart pounding moment too. Right. Well, I mean, they're cannon fodder, but they're also f- falls back into the, the special forces dirty dozen kind of story. Cause they're those people going there on the suicide mission. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and they're picked specifically for their skill. It's not just any random group of 12 women just climb over there and fall into the, and fall. their weight. Right. <laughs> that too. Oh yeah. They're, they're very specific about that weight. Right. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, it's, I think it's it's partly the lush prose. Um, it does that thing where it repeats words. So just mm. certain words get very lodged in my brain because it literally repeats them. Like yeah. I can't get out of my head. Like that the the, um, the golden pygmies, the the little people, they just keep getting called childlike because he would say the word like children. They're so curious. They they swarm at me like children, and they'll say the word child or a variation on child like three or four times, and it's. Yep. And the rhythm of his prose is something that I do, I don't don't hate it. It has a good rhythm to it. Um, Mm -hmm. The repetition is nice, but because the words he repeats are inevitably something very eyebrow raising, it sort of drums it into my head in a way that I think some other authors, even Lovecraft, like you just, I I don't notice as much Mm -hmm. because it doesn't have that same level of repetition, if you see what I'm getting at. Right. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I actually am genuinely interested because uh, we're, we're, we're talking to you. You're a novelist, a, a major award winning. So as as a craft, 
and looking at his craft, what is what you mentioned the repetition, which I think is very deliberate, obviously, because create a sort of rhythm and sort of a dreamlike state. Yeah. Um, what what other elements of his craft do you find interesting, either both in a positive or a negative way, um, um, as far as telling the story? The structure is quite interesting in terms of like he has the kind of, and I think that's that's an artifact of it being serialized. So you know you you, you have the opening, he hears the kind of distant drum, and then we kind of have this like multiple chapter long flashback. Um, and that's the sort of thing that we just don't do now in in modern fiction nearly like we just we just don't do that kind of thing we, we don't mm-hmm. plunge into a flashback from multiple chapters so like an abstract that's kind of interesting I, I i do think the rhythm as a prose is quite interesting it makes it quite interesting to read out loud like there's a we read it out loud there's a kind of it's quite a kind of fun momentum to it um i've been reading it to my living room for their entertainment um <laughs> uh, uh, we, we don't own a tv you see so that's what that's what passes and entertaining in this house um, nice so, so it just has this real. It, when you read it, it kind of it has a kind of breathless momentum, which um, I find relatively appealing. Great, and this is probably a good time for us to start wrapping up. So, before we do, was there any kind of last thing that you really wanted to chat about that we didn't quite get an opportunity to get to? Um, I, I, I really want to urge people to read more about what's happening to real world weakers. I'm sorry, I'm just that's. It, it, it's it it's it was it hung over my mind throughout reading this and you know you could go to Amnesty International you could you could read an article there's a there's a huge leak out of China recently um, last week like 400 mm-hmm. pages got leaked about like Xi Jinping being specifically involved in the camps so like there's a lot of news out there and I know I know we have a crazy news cycle all that stuff but you know oh, right um, just, i mean yeah you guys are preoccupied with brexit <laughs> we're occupied with the impeachment yeah, but, but yeah it's still going just, on just, right just spare spare a thought for them because it, it's it's a big deal and you know if i can if i can spend you know an hour talking about this book then i can you know we can, we can spend <laughs> right. just you know at least 10 minutes to read a fucking article about this it's, absolutely um because because you know this this book is worrying about their genocide by fucking people who aren't of their race, but in reality, um, their their cultural genocide is happening because you know re-education camps and it's right. really I fucking mean, awful. I'm sorry, I just. I mean, it's the not going too much about this. It's the uh, you know the first alt- iteration of the 100% security state, 100% surveillance yes. state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and what's going on right now? Um, and and it's 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 just inescapable because it's about the same people. Like if you mm-hmm. pick this up and you read about the Uyghurs, and it's like, well, what are they not like in real life? Well, in real life, they're Muslim, and they are they 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 are, they are very quite nastily oppressed. And it's it's right. it fits into this history. So um, they they aren't they aren't like a magical. <laughs> race they're not they're not elves right Um, and and, yeah unfortunately we're enabling it by we in the west just by whatever our culture war that we've already established with the muslim world china could say well listen we're not doing anything worse than what you guys are doing yeah right and and there are plenty of news reports that are even sympathetic that you're doing this expose they seek to explain why this is happening and they will frame it in terms of like well you know about a decade ago um uh, Uyghur separatists uh, did this terrorist attack. Therefore, um, this is happening, and and they and I think there is this trick there where they use this narrative trick, which implies 
because there was this terrorist attack, therefore this is justified, therefore this is happening, or even not justified, at least excused or understandable. Um, mm -hmm. And and like, you know, if, if I'm getting to platform about, like I'm getting to talk about this, I say you really watch out for that in your media when that comes up because it isn't justified. There, you know, a handful of people of one group doing that thing doesn't mean you have to then crap on that group of people from a great height repeatedly and throw them all into re-education camps and eradicate their culture. And this is, and if we're talking about generational scarring, this is, this is, this is going to be, this is not good. <laughs> um, so that's what I want to talk about. Really happy stuff. No, that's <laughs> fantastic. I'm, I'm really glad you're taking the time to do that. So thank you so much. Now, if, if there's anybody who wants to find any of your uh, past, current, or future projects, where, is the, where are the best places for them to seek that out? Um, so I have one novel out. It's called Under the Pendulum Sun. You could buy it where books are bought. It's about missionaries in fairyland, and it's this weird gothic bullshit. It's full of... <laughs> gothic nonsense tropes no. um, um i'm actually about an eighth of the way in and it's quite good so do go get it oh i'm so sorry <laughs> uh, uh, um and um and I'm, I'm on i'm on twitter i write i write articles short stories um and that that stuff gets updated on twitter and i, I tweet about it um and i'm on twitter as jeanette underscore and that's jeanette with two n and um uh, you have some more longer form pieces on medium right yes i do um yeah uh, yeah, and I write about, or I have written about, like, uh, game design and stuff on Medium as well. Um, a lot about the physicality of live roleplay and how that intersects with, like, writing cultures for it. And, like, how to design a culture around, oh, no, I'm in a field, we don't have chairs. Right. I would also recommend that our listeners go to YouTube, and if you Google her name, the first thing that will come up is her acceptance speech oh, um, it, into YouTube, and it is fantastic. I highly recommend that you oh. uh, <laughs> that you spend like two minutes watching that because it's 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 awesome. All right, well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Uh, so, Hoy, how can people find us? All right. If you would like to drop us a note, you can write us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. We're on MeWe and Facebook as well. And uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes. So you can go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. If you would like to show us some support uh, before this episode, we had a patron book club with Adam Styers, and that was a really fun conversation. We would also like to go ahead and give a shout out to a few of our other patrons. Uh, thank you to Ethan Schoonover, Mason Coffey, Stanley Raduski, Ian Little, Robbie Fioto, Andrew Cairns, Noah Green, and William Souter. Uh, Y'all rock. So thank you so much for your support. Uh, Jeanette, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We learned so much. <laughs> See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>